Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he shares what it means to have a heart that is completely sold out for Christ. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Amen. Victory to overcomers. Welcome to Impact Church this morning. How are you doing? Good? Diving right in this morning, continuing in our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Uh, We're going to pick up the pace just a little bit of our helicopter as we've been hovering a lot lately. And uh, we get to pick it up just a little bit. And we're going to learn a lot today as we look at the fifth and sixth uh, seal and uh, also the seventh chapter, this interlude chapter uh, that's in this book of Revelation. So the title of today's message is sold out, Warriors of the Final Minutes. Because what we're going to see specifically in most of the passages today are pointing to some people that make a stand for Christ in a world that we cannot imagine, in a situation of persecution that we can't even fathom. And there are people that are going to endure to the end even to the cost of their life for the gospel and for Jesus. Think about that. You know, today we're going to, a lot of us are going to watch this Super Bowl. and We're going to see two teams take the field with a bunch of athletic men that have trained their bodies for competition. I want you to think about that. All right. And these are men that are committed to their team, no matter what. They're going to be wearing different jerseys, different helmets. And at no point in the game, no matter what the score is, no matter what it looks like going on, no matter what adversity they're face, you're never going to see Patrick Mahomes go over to the Eagles sideline and be like, yo, man, can I have one of y'all's jerseys and helmets? Because y'all are like kicking our tail over here for a little bit. And then a quarter later, when tables flip and maybe the game switches with momentum, you're not going to see Jalen Hurts go over to the Chiefs sideline and be like, hey, Patrick. Let me take your jersey for a minute. You're not going to see that. Why? They are committed to the team they are on. No matter what's going on on the field, I want you to think about that. You're going to see a group of men that are going to deny themselves for the greater cause of the team. They don't care if they're carrying the ball, running the touchdown. They're going to block. They're going to fulfill their assignment. They're going to cheer on the sideline. They're going to get things ready. Whatever the case may be, whatever position they have, they're going to be doing it with their all and commitment and extreme focus, not caring who gets the glory. They're going to deny themselves. The ones on the field are going to sacrifice their bodies at all costs, maybe even sacrifice their careers with a potential injury, all for victory. Why do you say all that? Guys, we are called to do very similar same things for Jesus. We are all called to be committed to the cause of Christ and not to switch jerseys when things don't look like they're going wrong or, or, or things look like they're going wrong or, or when it seems like the impossible is facing us. We are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. 
We are not called to indulge our flesh and make sure we get ours and, and make sure we're happy and our feelings are accounted for. We are called to deny ourselves if we follow Jesus for the greater cause of Christ and the kingdom that's to become. We are called to be a living sacrifice, to sacrifice our bodies, our lives, if you will, for the cause of Christ, for that's our proper act of worship, Romans 12 tells us. We're not to conform to the patterns of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Jesus. We're to be committed. We're to be sold out. So we're going to see some people today that should encourage us. Because if they can stand and be sold out in the environment that we've been looking at the past few weeks and the environment that we'll be looking at today and in to come, if they can stand for Jesus in this, what excuse do you and I have? What do we have? It ought to encourage us today to stand for Christ where we are because you've heard me say many times we're in the fourth quarter and we don't know how much time's left on the clock, Right? So we need to live for him now. We need to get our lives right. We need to evangelize and reach people for Jesus. We need to make disciples who go out and make more disciples and reach the lost. Because there's coming a time where there will be a time clock. In the great tribulation, a definitive seven-year period where the time will be counting down the days. And these are men and women of the final minutes who are warriors for Jesus. Not losing their faith even into the death. They're called to die for Jesus. What excuse do you and I have not to live for him? Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, I'm excited to be here today to lift your name up. Father, to preach your word. Lord, I'm not worthy. So, Lord, I pray that, Father, I wouldn't be seen or heard, Lord, but only you would be heard. Lord, that we would learn from your word today. We would see application to our lives in this. We would see the reality of your word. And Lord, how real it is. Lord, forgive us for just going through the motions. I know I've been guilty of that in my life. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, we want to be sold out for you right now. Lord, let this word encourage us, fill us to make us stand for you, Lord, to preach the truth in love, Lord, to, to, to point to you the only hope, purpose, and peace that this world will ever have, and they're searching for it in the wrong places right now. Lord, help us be the light and the darkness and the salt of this earth that you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that you would go before us, prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word, because as we always say, we don't want to just be a hearer of your word, Lord. We want to be a doer, and we can only do that by being powered by your spirit. So come, Lord Jesus, and fall upon this place and do what only you can do, and you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a copy of God's word, we're going to be in chapter 6 today. And then also in chapter 7, but first we're going to start in chapter 6. And I'm going to read the remainder of the passage where we left off after, of course, hovering over the four horses of the apocalypse um, individually and looking deep into that and gaining understanding. Now we're going to read for the fifth seal and the sixth seal, and that's starting in verse 9 through 17 in chapter 6. You got it? So let's read God's word together. 
says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of the heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? A lot in there. Let's look at this fifth seal here, starting in verse 9. Right off the bat, we see, and it's probably entitled in your Bible, that this is the cry of the martyrs. All right, that there are people actually losing their life for faith in Jesus during the tribulation. Think about that in large numbers during this time. It's not just a, a spotty, rare occasion as it is today. There's people that lose their life for the faith today, but it's not global. It's in small pockets and corners of the earth where the gospel is not accepted and they have to make a stand even to death. You've heard of those stories of maybe some missionaries and people that have done that. But this is on a global scale. It's important here that we see John sees souls that were under the altar. That's significant. Because you could just read by that and be like, eh, what does that mean? That's kind of weird. Why are they under the altar? All right? He emphasizes this. Why? Because we're seeing it represents their lifeblood was poured out as an offering to God. Okay? We're going to look at that. Another thing of significance is John sees souls here, not people. Why is that important? Extremely important because it also solidifies the rapture that we talked about, okay? Because we talked about in the rapture what happens, right? Before the tribulation, the rapture occurs. What happens to those who have died in Christ prior? Their souls are already in heaven, but their bodies precede us going up to meet Christ where? in the clouds, in the air. He doesn't come all the way to earth. There's a difference. The bodies meet, and then those who are alive will be caught up, harpazo, with them to meet and be with them in the air. So we all go and have glorified bodies in heaven. That is solidified in, in the uh, chapter 4 where we saw the throne room and saw the 24 elders. They were bodies. They were not souls. Those 24 elders represented the church raptured. Remember all that? And they were there in heaven with God in worship before the scroll was even given to Jesus to start the tribulation. You see that? So the bodies were there. Everybody from the rapture has a glorified body in heaven, but John sees souls. So this points to the time when they were martyred. Because some people would look at this passage and be like, this represents the martyrs of all time. No, 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 no. The martyrs from all time before the rapture now have a glorified body 
They are not in souls. They have glorified bodies. So he sees souls. These are people, therefore, martyred after the rapture during the tribulation. Does that make sense? Significant. Because we see the timing and we see how they're dying. All right? It tells us how they were martyred. So they will also receive a glorified body one day, but we'll catch up with that in Revelation chapter 20 when it calls it the first resurrection. So the first resurrection essentially has two parts because we have the rapture and we have those with the glorified bodies coming at the end of the tribulation who have been martyred and get saved during the tribulation. They will have their glorified bodies and we will all reign together for a thousand years with Jesus after that. All right? That's called the first rapture in Revelation 20. We'll get there later. All right? But significant as well is they are under the altar, as we pointed out. We know that the altar was um, supposed to be built even in the temple according to what God gave standards for, for Moses to do so. And in uh, Hebrews 8, 5, we see that the temple and the system of worship on earth are modeled after the temple in heaven. Okay, So this is altar in heaven. And so it's significant as you look, and we won't have time to read all the passages, but if you go back to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 7, you see that when sacrifices were made in the temple at the altar, the blood was also poured on the ground under the altar, okay, from the animal that was the sacrifice, all right? So there's the significance. There's these souls representing their blood under the altar that was giving out as a sacrifice for God, all right? And we know Jesus died as an atonement, a sacrifice for sin once and for all. That's Hebrews chapter 10, 10. He died once and for all. We don't have to do animal sacrifices anymore. So their sacrifice, this is important, was not a sacrifice of atonement. It was a sacrifice of devotion, it was a sacrifice of being sold out warriors in the final minutes. They loved their life, not even into the death. Oh, they didn't love their life even into the death. They gave their life for Jesus. All right? So we see in the New Testament that it corroborates this, that martyrs are seen as a sacrifice. All right? Even in uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 2, 17, it says that I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring out like a liquid offering to God. It's talking about people that died for Jesus here. This is important because other people are going to be dying that are probably Christians as well. That could happen. That, say, that got saved during the tribulation. They might die during a famine that we talked about. They might die during war. They might die during pestilence that we all pointed to in the previous stuff. But these people specifically died for Christ, for their faith. They were martyred, all right? And you think of the young lady from Caliban years ago, Rachel Scott. You know her story and how she had this opportunity with a gun pointed at her head to denounce Christ. And who knows, maybe live. But they said, but do you believe in God? She says, you know I do. And they said, go be with him. And he pulled the trigger. I wonder what you and I would do in that scenario. I wonder what you and I would do in this scenario that these people were facing in the tribulation. Would we stand? I mean, in the face of famine and everything we talked about with our kids starving and everything else, would we stand? Man, we, I have to feel like I have to plead God's word for people to stand now, and it's easy. How do we think we can stand then if we can't stand now? This is the encouragement we need, that we need to buckle up, soldiers, and we need to stand for Jesus right now. Make no mistake. We have no excuse. 
Bible says they cried with a loud voice. These are the souls in heaven crying out for vengeance. I want you to think about that. How long until you avenge our blood, Lord? We've poured it out for you at the base of the altar. When are you going to avenge us? This word Lord here is not the word Kurios in the Greek, which is the most common word for Lord, which means master, owner. It's the word despotes, which means ruler with absolute power. They know he has control. They know that he could, could zap the earth at any moment and just, and just call vengeance right now. But the Lord says something interesting. He says, wait. Why would he say that? You see, God's people are being persecuted. And in the end, he will set it right. But it's not in our time, it's in his. Why? Because he's a God of grace and mercy. And even during an age of judgment like the tribulation, he still wants people to be saved. Do you see that? That's why he says, wait. There's some brothers and sisters out there that are still going to come and they're going to make a stand for my glory on this earth in the face of this meth. And and we're going to welcome them up here with us. Just wait. (laughs) Some people have a problem with them asking for vengeance. They say, well, that's not right. That's not what Jesus taught. You got to remember, we're in the age of grace right now. So Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, to bless those who persecute us, right? That's the age in which we live. So that wouldn't be a valid prayer to the Lord right now, okay? But once the rapture happens, you're in the age of judgment. Now you're, you're justified to ask for what you know God's already promised. But he's just saying not yet. The time will come, but more people have to be saved. In a way, you look and you see that this blood, uh, that these people crying out was the blood crying out for vengeance, just like it's portrayed uh, with the the blood of Abel that cried out from the ground for vengeance. Remember that in Genesis chapter 4? And also for the blood of the uh, unavenged murderers in the land of Israel in Numbers 35. So the same scenario, they're on the ground, the blood's on the ground, and it's crying out for vengeance. You see where the Bible just comes together? It was said they should wait, though. Because of God's grace, even in this age of judgment, he still wants people to come and just repent. Man, that's what he's calling people to do now is repent and come to him. To have a change of mind about who he is that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of action. That's repentance. And it's all by his glory. And it's all done by him. He's the one who calls. That's why it's so important when God pricks our heart and pulls us his direction that we don't say no. That we don't harden our heart against him. But we say yes to Jesus. What is he doing in your life right now? What is he using for you to say yes to him? Don't ignore it. Say yes. Some of you need to say yes for the first time and really surrender your life to him and and be an authentic follower of Jesus, not just a churchgoer, not just an amazing grace singer, not just a Bible verse quoter, but an authentic follower, disciple of Jesus that surrendered to the cross. You need to do that. There might be some people in here that need to say yes to Jesus for the continued process of sanctification. You're being hard-headed and you're stiff-arming God saying, oh, I don't have to do that, God, because that's legalism. No, it's not. If God's putting his finger on something through his word in your life that you need to get it right, you need to give it up. 
What is that? What do you need to say yes to Jesus to? These people said yes with a knife to their throat. (laughs) Say yes. What makes you a martyr? It's not just how you die. What makes you a martyr is how you live. It's how these people lived. It's how they made a stand. How they were different. They were set apart. They weren't falling for the world system to be set in place. They weren't falling for the culture. They were making a stand for Christ and it caused them their life. And we're just worried about if we'll get unfriended on Facebook or not invited to the party. You see, there's prerequisites for Jesus to come back the second time. You see this here. We know the the prerequisites of the Antichrist must come and all these things that must happen in that 70th week of Daniel, this seven-year tribulation. But did you catch the other one? The last martyr must, must come and die. The last person must accept Christ before Jesus can come back to the Mount of Olives for that second advent. Some people get a little confused as in Matthew 24 as I was for so many times because I just honestly believed what people told me. And, and that's many people believe when in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus says that this gospel will be preached to every nation and then the end will come, they think that has to do with the rapture. That the gospel must be preached to all the world and then the rapture will take place. So I want you to think about this and it just hit me while I was studying. If we say the rapture is imminent, that means that we say the rapture could come at any time. And we also say the gospel must be preached to the whole nation before that happens. What did we just do? Just contradicted ourselves. Because if, that means if I believe that a prerequisite to the rapture is the gospel has to be preached to all the nations, that means I can look on Wycliffe Bible translators every week and see how close they are to getting the word of God in every language before I accept Jesus. It's not the case. If you look at the verse in context in Matthew chapter 24, we don't have time to go through it. You'll see that he's specifically looking at the tribulation events, that the gospel will be preached to all the earth during the tribulation, and then the end will come because the last person will come to Jesus. That's the prerequisite to him coming back. He wants people to be saved. It's not fun for God to give judgment on this earth. It's not. He's not a mean God. He's a loving God. He wants people to come down. Look at the sixth seal in verse 12. We see a list of celestial and earthly disturbances and events. And we know a lot of times celestial events are connected with the coming of the Messiah all through God's word. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, even Jesus himself pointed to celestial events around the end times. But if you look at all this that we just read, two things come to mind. If you just read them and you don't dig and understand, first thing is, looks kind of far-fetched, doesn't it? Earth turning black, moon turning red, Stars falling from the sky. Everything's shifting. The stars go away. What, what, what is that? That doesn't make sense, does it? It will in just a minute. 
Another thing that comes to mind is if you saw this happening, say this was all happening right now, what would you think? The world's coming to an end, right? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, because that's what God's trying to do and warn people that is coming. This world, this earth will be shaken. You don't want to be a part of the things of this world. We see that the Bible specifically points to there a great earthquake, it says in verse 12. In verse 12. That's the Greek word megas seismos. That's where we get our word mega and seismic, all right? So it means literally a monster earthquake, all right? One probably bigger, of course, than the world's ever seen because of what we're going to see takes place because of this, all right? This earthquake is going to set off the events that we see that's listed after this. I'm going to explain that, all right? Because it's, it actually makes sense scientifically and geographically as well, okay? So we're going to look at that. So there's this major earthquake. And we know when earthquakes go off, you can go back and you can Google all this, major earthquakes can set off volcanoes. So if there's a major earthquake that affects the whole earth, there's volcanoes going off around the entire earth, even possibly ones that have been dormant because God is God and he can make that happen. So when these volcanoes go off, it's exuding smoke and debris into the air. And you can look scientifically when all that debris is in the air that the cloud of dust is so bad that it can actually cause darkness. That's the sun turning black. Did you get it? As far as the moon, the debris in the air at night can actually make the moon look red. That can happen now around volcanic eruptions. You can go and Google that. The, earth can, the sun can actually look black. The moon can look red after a volcanic eruption. So, so you see this very, strict, very, uh, very strategically pointed to by this earthquake, and it's real. It's not sci-fi stuff here that God's trying to bring to us. This is realistic, guys. This just encourage you about God's word. Then it says the stars, the asteroids, that, that's the Greek word for asteroids or meteorites falling from the sky to the earth. One might ask, how can that happen right now? We have a magnetic field around our earth that shields us. Did you know that? That's why these things don't hit our earth right now. There's a magnetic field from the, from the polarity of the earth that, that reflects these things. That's going to be taken away. The only way that can be taken away is through one thing, and that's a polar shift. Okay? So let's put all this together. Major earthquake can cause volcanoes to erupt. But now there's meteorites, stars that can hit the earth. How does that happen? When a polar shift happens, that means that there's a, an axis the earth spins on. Y'all know what, uh, what the, a polar axis is of the earth? It's actually tilted at 23 and a half degrees. Okay, I'm not going to make this a huge science lesson, but I am going to make the word of God make sense for you. Okay, so you need to get this. 23 and a half degree tilted the earth that it spins as it revolves around the sun. That's where we get our seasons, right? As it revolves and everything. And and it's, it's just how things work. It's where we get our magnetic field, everything else. But if the tilt were to shift, a complete change in polarity, a complete change in how we view the heavens, and a complete change in our climate would take place across the earth, all right? Where did you get a polar shift out of this, Brad? It didn't point to this. Well, it's explaining what happens during a polar shift. So let's go back to that earthquake. Can a significant earthquake then cause a polar shift? Yes. Yes. The axis of the earth already shifts micro-like 
just naturally. It's said that the major earthquake that happened in 2004 there in Indonesia actually caused the earth to wobble on its polar axis. Okay, scientific, you can go Google and research, says if the earthquake was strong enough, it could actually cause the polar axis of the earth to tilt and shift. I want you to think about that. And we have God's word, ladies and gentlemen. So, still don't believe it? <laughs> if you look at verse 14, we talked about this heavens rolling. and said, well, Brad, that still doesn't explain the heavens shifting. How can an earthquake affect the stars? Did you see that? When it says that, it says, and the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. All right, so here I have a scroll, all right? But this is not the scroll that John sees. He sees actually a split scroll, okay? Turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 4. Isaiah 34, verse 4. And we're going to see something amazing. Are you ready? (laughs) Isaiah sees the exact same thing that John saw. You ready? All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Boy, that sounds like what we just read in Revelation, doesn't it? Because it is. What does he say? It says the word dissolved, says the heavens dissolved. Think about that for just a minute. The word dissolve, this Hebrew word, is, is malkak. It usually means to rot or decay. So you could say, oh, well, the, the stars in the heaven are going to rot and decay away. That's what it means. Not so fast. If they rot and decay away here in chapter 6, then we have judgment and bowl judgments coming that are supposed to affect the stars. In the judgment bowls, a third of the celestial beings. In the bowl judgments, all the celestial beings would be affected. If they dissolve away in chapter 6, how are we going to have that? You won't. So it cannot possibly mean dissolve or rot completely away. What does it mean then? If you look at this Hebrew word, it means figuratively, it has a figurative meaning and definition as well. It means to flow, to dwindle or vanish. That's important, to flow. I want you to think about that, all right? Then it says, in the Isaiah passage, it says it rolled up like a scroll, all right? And rolled together, all right? This is the word to roll, okay? So what he's seeing is a split scroll, okay? It's a split scroll. So if you think about this, when you just have a regular scroll, you have one side rolled up. But a split scroll, you have two sides rolled up, okay? So now the way this is read is as I read this side, this side flows and rolls up. So what John was seeing was not a complete dissolving of the sky, but the appearance of what I saw right here now is getting flowed and rolled up and I can't see it no more and I'm seeing something different. What does that describe? A polar shift. If I'm at one position on the earth at a 23 and a half degree angle and the earth tilts here, now when I look straight up, I see a different set of stars, baby. What I once saw in my atmosphere at this time of year, at this time of night, I now see different. Does that make sense? It's what John's seeing. It's what Isaiah saw. And it corroborates it. 
And even further, look at Isaiah 24, verses 19 through 20. Talking about God's judgment on the earth in the same scenario. Isaiah 24, 19 through 20 says, The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. What does that sound like? Earthquake. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. Remember I told you that earthquake in 2004 actually caused the earth to wobble? It actually changed the length of days by seven milliseconds. Think about that because of the shift it did. The earth staggers like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. The New Living Translation says that it moves like a tent in the storm. If there's any church that I can preach to that would understand that, it's this one, isn't it? You've been in that tent when that wind was flapping and the whole thing, everybody like, look, is this place going to be all right? No, I don't know. All right, we can understand that, what it totters like in a tent in a storm, okay? That's what the earth's going to be like. The whole earth, it's rocking, baby. The polar axis is moving. And then catch this. It says this, and it says, it's because of its transgression shall be heavy upon it. So in other words, this is all happening as judgment because of sin. We know that's what tribulation is about. And it says, it will fall not to rise again. What you think about that? Earth's at 23 and a half degrees, it will fall. Which direction is probably going? Down, baby. It'll fall never to come back to its normal state. If you look scientifically, a shift in the earth to 35 or even as much as 40 degrees of a tilt can cause catastrophic climate change across the world. The tropics will have winter. Where it's already cold will be like an ice age. Nothing will survive just by that, from an earthquake. And not only that, you get the change in view that John sees and Isaiah sees from the celestial beings being flowed or rolled like a split scroll, okay? Change in magnetic field allows the meteorites to come. Does God's word make sense now? It's not sci-fi, it's actually supported. Mountains and islands shifted and moved from their place. Obviously, tectonic plate shifting, moving the structures here and there. But also, if the polar shift takes place like that, some certain islands and, and uh, mountains could be covered with water from everything that happened and all the climate change and everything that takes place. Or it could be like they moved. Like we talked about, tropics being having winter now. It'd be like I moved up north from the Bahamas just from climate change. God's word makes sense. Let's look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at that because we're going to go and we're going to look now at something very special, okay? For the most part, you need to understand this, the book of Revelation is written in chronological order mostly, but not entirely, okay? And this is important, all right? There's something called interludes in this book of Revelation. We're familiar with interludes in music, right? Like when Tony wants to connect two songs, he'll have some connection notes that kind of flow from this song into this song. Interlude, drama has it. In literature, it is a additional information that the reader needs to know to understand what's going on either before or for what's to come. So it's like a parenthetical separation from the text to give information about what's going on. Okay, chapter seven is an interlude and it's meant to fill gaps. 
Other interludes in Revelation are chapter 10 through 11, verse 14, and then also chapter 12 through 14. These are interludes. If you don't know this, it'll confuse you because you'll try to put this in the timeline of Revelation and it won't make sense because it won't fit. Okay? So we have to understand these are interludes in this period. All right, got it? So now we have an interlude in chapter 7. Verse 1 through 4 says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed." So you have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed. What is their job? Preach the gospel on the earth. That they come to Christ. These are Messianic Jews who accept Christ during the tribulation, okay? And therefore, they start preaching God's word across the earth, okay? So here's the important part as we look. Chapter 6 ended with a question. Who will be able to stand? In a sense, this interlude starts to answer some of that question. The 144,000 sealed with a name on their forehead are going to be able to stand by God's grace and protection and provision. We're going to see as we get into chapter 9 there that even when the locusts, the demons, if you will, that come up from the abyss, when they come across the earth, that they are not to touch those that are sealed with, with God on their forehead. Okay. It's similar to the plagues that Moses had with the Egyptians, right? When Moses came and God sent the plagues, it affected the Egyptians, but who did it not touch? God's people, remember that? It was like this force field. Hey, you're, you're, you're getting affected, but my people aren't, okay? So essentially, we're going to see that. And as we've saw so many times, the Old Testament really lays out and supports Revelation. So let's look at something again. This, uh, in the beginning of chapter 7, talks about four winds of the earth. All right? It also talks about uh, winds of the earth as judgment in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36. We're not going to read all this. You can write it down if you're taking notes and go look later. All right? So we see that these winds from this passage already point to wrath of God on earth. Okay? And this is important. In the passage we just read in chapter 7, it says, don't let the rest go. So don't let all the winds go until what? Until we place the seals on the foreheads of God's servant. And it says there, it says, don't harm what? Don't harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth, the sea, the trees, all that stuff. Well, hold up. We just talked about the sixth seal. What did that just do? It harmed the earth, the sea, the grass, and everything else. So do you see where this is an interlude to put back? So these people were Messianic Jews saved after the rapture, okay, that were then to be sealed before all this other stuff were to take place that we just read about, all right? So we get a, a very clear glimpse in verse 3, don't hurt until this happens, Obviously, this happened before what we just read about, and possibly even before the, uh, the Antichrist had come on the scene. 
If you look at uh, Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8, there's a pattern of four chariots with horses of the same colors of Revelation 6, 1 through 8. They go throughout the whole earth, all right? And in the Zechariah passage, they're called the four spirits of heaven. Spirits in that passage translates to the Hebrew word rock, which also is translated to winds, okay? So this possible that this was happened before the horses of the apocalypse were released. Hey, let's get these guys sealed. Let's get them preaching the gospel. That way people can get saved, which then justifies the fifth seal that people were getting saved and being martyred for the faith. Hope that all makes sense. All right. So we have a completion and a coming together here. So these people are going to be sealed. All right. Who is sealed? 12,000 from each tribe, all right? Two tribes that are absent there, of course, are the tribe of Dan and Ephraim because their names were blotted out for idolatry, all right? That, you can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 29, all right? They will, of course, in the end, still people can get saved from those tribes. They will reign at the millennial kingdom, but their names were blotted out here because of idolatry. So we see that these are Messianic Jews who get saved after the rapture, all right? It's essentially what Paul was pointing to in Romans chapter 11 because he wanted the Jews to be saved. He wanted his own to come to Christ, right? But they rejected him. They rejected the truth, okay? So then Paul did what? He went to preaching to the Gentiles. And he even says it in Romans 11. He says that I hope that it will spawn some jealousy in, in my people to see that these Gentiles are getting saved and they'll come to Christ. Got it? Of course, Paul never saw that. But very likely, this will happen at the rapture when the Jews see all these Gentiles lifted from the earth and gone, and they know they're in Christ. Plus, they see the two witnesses come on the scene, who many believe are Moses and Elijah. And if that's the case, the Jews are already looking for for, uh, Moses to come back. Okay, So they see these two witnesses, and they realize that what they had first thought was a lie is real. So they repent and come to faith. Okay, They come. So we see these 144,000 were sold out servants preaching the gospel. Let's look at this. How do we know that? Let's look at Revelation 14, verses 4 through 5. Revelation 14, verses 4 through 5. The word of God says this about this 144,000. It said, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These, are, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. All right. So we see that these people, these 144,000, are preaching the gospel as servants sold out for Jesus. I want you to think about that. They're going to face opposition. They're going to face horrible circumstances. They face persecution. They're even going to face face being martyred. All for Jesus. And I want you to hear this. Obviously, they ain't tickling ears. They're not preaching no prosperity gospel. (laughs) They're preaching come to Jesus because you know what you're going to have to do then to come to Jesus? Be willing to die. Think about that. (laughs) And all people want to hear now is a good ear-tickling, uplifting message. We're trying to point what's going to happen if you don't surrender and come to faith in Jesus. God wants us to stand for him now. 
So these people were radically changed. They were unbelievers. They once were blind, but now they see. They see the truth, and it radically changed them. Call it a Damascus Road experience. Have you had that? Have you had that experience where where the power of Christ and his spirit has fallen upon you, and it's radically changed you? It's given you a new desire, a new heart. It doesn't mean that everything's fixed and you don't sin, um, keep sinning right now. Make no mistake, we're still going to fight our flesh until the day we die. But there should be a new resolve and a heart attitude in you to not make excuses for sin, but to separate from it. That should be your desire, even though your flesh fails at times. So what's the result of this as we close? The result is the end of chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Let me read that for us very quickly as we close. So after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations. That's important. Tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? That'd be a great question. He answers it. He says, And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, that's important, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's the result of the preaching of the gospel? People are going to get saved during the tribulation. They are. A great multitude that man can't even number. And I like that he said man can't even number because God surely knows the number, doesn't he? God knows the hairs on your head. Some of us give him a break in that task, all right? But God knows everything and he knows the numbers, okay? So he knows the people are there, but it's too large of a sea of people for, for a man to count. So this isn't just 144,000, because first of all, we know that because man could count that number. But then also it says these are from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. They're not just the Messianic Jews, all right? They're not just the men from that tribe that were called. These are of all people, of all nations that come to Christ, all right? It's important. Very likely they are martyred. Some of them might have just died in famine and pestilence and stuff, I'm sure. But most of these are probably martyred because they're given a robe here. And they're given this robe that points to something. They're given a robe that points to victory. The church was given a robe at the rapture that you could read about, and that's a hemation. These martyrs received a stole. And it's a robe of dignity and victory. It's a victory robe because these people have been put to the test. Ladies and gentlemen, we haven't been put to the test. We just think we're being put to the test. These people have been put to the test and they overcome. Again, like we started, that should encourage us. 
to know that, yes, we can. That here in the fourth quarter on this earth, as, as it looks like the odds are stacked against us because, yeah, essentially they are when you look at the Bible. Not even people in the church want to tolerate sound doctrine anymore. They want to run to the teachers that will tickle their ears, and there's plenty they can find. We're up against it right now. We are, but we have to stand, and we have to share truth in love. But these are ones that come out in victory. These are sold out warriors in the final minutes. You see, if we live in a country where we're free to live for Christ, and we failed to do that according to the standards of the Lord in his word, what do you think the probability is that we will endure affliction in a time of tribulation like the world has never seen and come to him then? What do you think the probability of that is? If you can't do it now, when it's quote-unquote easy, could you do it then? What I'm saying is this. The greatest risk that any person could ever take is not to surrender to Jesus right now, totally and completely. It's a great risk. Do it now and live for him. Don't wait for a time in the tribulation. Do it now. And the encouragement, if they can stand and gain a robe of victory, in the face of chaos and persecution, then surely we can as well. Look at the person beside you and tell them, let's stand. Let's stand for Christ now. We can surely live for Christ in the age we're in, and we can be a warrior in the fourth quarter because we just learned about some warriors of the final minutes they have it much harder than we do. Let's stand for Jesus in his word, church. We won't be popular. The way I preach won't make this church popular. Unfortunately, you see it every week where people walk out. It breaks my heart. But I'm not going to stop. <laughs> because... Honestly, I could preach a whole lot easier sermons. <laughs> There's some easier books of the Bible I could do that would take me a third of the less study than it takes to prepare these messages every Sunday. And I could come in here and I could tickle some ears and I could lift you high and you could walk out of here, woo, every week. And that would move a few. But I may miss the people who don't really have their heart and life right with Jesus before it's too late. We can stand in victory. We can have victory now, even in the midst of circumstances that don't look good. Because Christ has called all of us to be committed to him, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to live for him and stand for him 
in a world going the opposite direction. You and I are called to be sold out. Are you? Let's bow our head and close our eyes. I wonder if there's anybody here to might say, I'm done. I'm done trying to live life for myself, for the things of this world. And I'm running to the cross today. I'm surrendering to Jesus. I'm entrusting and committing my life to him. If that's you and you need to do that, I'm going to ask you to do business with the Lord here, right here today. I'm going to lead you through a conversation I want you to have with God where you align your heart with his and you confess with your tongue that he's Lord to be saved. Or if you're here and you've done that before maybe, but lately you've drifted. You haven't lived for him the way you know God wants you to. Life's been tough maybe. Temptation's been hard and you've given in and you need to repent and come back today. I'm going to ask you to have that same conversation with God and rededicate your life to him and be sold out from this point forward. So with everybody in this place, that the Lord's tugging, say yes right now and do business with him and receive him for the first time or to rededicate your life right now from your heart to God's heart to say, dear Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you, my Savior. To this point in my life, I've been living for myself, for the things of this world. God, it has separated me from you. And today I want to make a change. Thank you for sending your son, God in the flesh, the spotless lamb, to break his body and to shed his blood that I could be forgiven, that he took my place. He took the penalty that was due me and set me free. And Lord, I entrust and commit my life to you. Thank you for raising from the grave three days later, proving that you are God and you stand in victory over all hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to stand in victory with you. And from this day forward, I want to be a sold-out warrior in the final hours. So Lord, I pray that you would right now strengthen me with your spirit and my commitment to you is that every breath I take and every step I make will be for your glory. I give you my life. Amen. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If you did business with the Lord right there for the first time or to rededicate, would you just simply raise your hand? I just want to pray over you right now. Say, Brad, I did it. I meant business with God. I'm not ashamed. Amen, church. Let's take this word today, which I hope you learned a lot. I sure studied a lot. So I hope you learned a lot, and I hope the Bible makes sense. And most of all, I hope it moved you today. I hope it encourages you. I hope you can see trying to put this encouragement to, to, for application. I'm so big on that. I want the Bible to become alive where we can apply it. So let's go be sold out warriors for Jesus. God has a plan and a mission for your life. Let's not back down no matter what the cost. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Go make an impact for Jesus.
Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. Christ.